following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Series about the Holy Spirit, second week. Um, so this morning we're going to look at a, another important piece of what it means to have the Holy Spirit living in us, and we're going to be looking primarily at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, uh, with the main focus being on verse 18. So if you want to follow along as we read, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. All right technical difficulties with this stand this morning. Um, we, uh, we looked last week uh, at the topic of being indwelled by the Spirit, important aspect of the Spirit uh, and ministry of the life, uh, ministry, of the life in our, uh, ministry of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Uh, today we're going to re- be looking specifically at this concept, concept of being Spirit-filled being filled with the Spirit. Um, And uh, it's a common term. Maybe you've heard this term, kind of the Spirit-filled life or being filled with the Spirit. Um, And I think there's some, uh, sometimes some confusion about this. We want to look, what is being Spirit-filled? How does that relate to the indwelling of the Spirit? Are they different? Are they the same? What does it look like? And how how do we get this? And what difference does it make or should it make in our life? Um, And to back up a little bit, uh, when, if, if we could look at the big picture of the story of the Bible and look at uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament and kind of compare them, what would be, in the largest possible sweeping terms, the main differences? Well, it's very interesting. When you look at the, the main characters of the Old Testament and the main characters of the New Testament, um, the difference is this. In the Old Testament, the main characters all failed. In the New Testament, amazingly enough, the main characters are incredibly successful. Uh, So you look at, so so here's some examples. You look at at Moses, right? Moses uh, was charged with leading the people out of Exodus. We we just went through the whole book of Exodus. And Moses, you know, great man of God, great man of faith, brings the people, confronts Pharaoh, brings the people out out of Egypt, out of slavery. Uh, and he is to guide them and lead them into the promised land, right? But Moses himself doesn't get to go in. Why? Because he disqualified himself because of his temper. Right? He fails. He ends up not taking uh, possession of the very thing he is commissioned to deliver. Right? Jump forward to, to David. David, a man after God's own heart. A guy who um, wrote... Uh, a good chunk of the Psalms and much of the Old Testament is built on on um, the promise of him as king. He's the really the forerunner to Jesus. He's a big guy, right? Important person in the Old Testament, and yet he proves to be kind of a disaster as a father. His family is a mess, and he uh, turns out to be a murderer and an adulterer. Right? And his life really ends really uh, largely in, in, in moral failure and dealing with the consequences of that. Right? He's not, in the end, all that successful. And you can go on down Solomon, smartest guy, wisest guy ever, right? But not wise enough to know you should not marry a thousand wives. Right? Turns out his wisdom doesn't do him much good because he clearly doesn't apply it. Right? Uh, we all know, if we're married or even we're not married, we're, 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 we figured this out that, yeah, you know, one's enough, right? One's enough. Um, he did not figure that out. So, so throughout the Old Testament, these guys all fail. And it's interesting, even in the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, um, the disciples are actually not much better. Right? Uh, 
even, even though they are living with Jesus day in and day out, and he's personally mentoring and teaching them. Jesus, Son of God, is teaching them. And yet, when Jesus goes to the cross, they all abandon him. They all desert him. They deny him. Uh, they betray him. They, they turn their back and walk away from him. Uh, and interestingly, even after his death and resurrection, the Gospels end with the, the disciples confused and bewildered and hiding out in an upper room. Uh, but then, uh, the book of Acts comes along, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on these guys, and they are never the same. Right? Peter, uh, a, a, a girl, accuses him of being a follower of Jesus, and to a girl, he cannot stand up and say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. He lies and denies that he ever knew Jesus. But after the Holy Spirit comes, he stands up before the very... Jewish leaders who crucified Jesus. And he said, it's not right for us to obey man and not God. And he defies the leaders and he goes out and he preaches the gospel with great boldness and fervor. He has a new power in his life that makes him and, and the other apostles and the early Christians unstoppable. And they weren't greatly educated. These were fishermen. These were common everyday people. But they turned the world upside down with the new power that's evident throughout the rest of the New Testament. Uh, Paul is one day killing Christians and persecuting them. And he meets Jesus, and Ananias goes and lays hands on him, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit. And from that day on, he is out preaching the gospel. And he's actually receiving the very abuse and persecution that he was dishing out, and even more so. But he is unstoppable in his desire to see the world come to know the truth about Jesus. So what happened? What what is it in the New Testament that was missing in the Old Testament? When you look at the story, there's clearly two things that happened that changed everything. The first is that Jesus died and rose again. Right? Something about the power of the cross changed uh, our power to live life differently. But secondly, uh, the second thing that's true in the New Testament, not in the Old, is that the Holy Spirit came upon them. And not just on a select few, but on every single follower of Christ. They were filled with the Holy Spirit who came upon them. And the world hasn't been the same since. Um, and throughout the New Testament, from Acts on, uh, writers like Peter and Paul and James write with this expectation that our life as Christians will be different. That coming to Christ will change you. That you will no longer uh, be defeated and controlled and under the power of sin. Uh, Paul and other authors uh, write with this expectation that because the Holy Spirit lives in you, you will live differently. You will be a conqueror and an overcomer. Uh, but what's interesting is that's really often not the conversation that's going on nowadays in the church. Um, in fact, it's become very out of vogue to, to preach and proclaim the overcoming life or the victorious Christian life. When is the last time you ever heard that phrase, the victorious Christian life? Why? Well, because we're not about that anymore. We're about the grace-filled, forgiven Christian life. Right? Now, I'm all about grace. I'm all about forgiveness. And praise God for his forgiveness. I don't want to diminish this. But here's the thing. Right? What, we've, what we've decided is we cannot overcome sin. Right? We are, we are sinful. We're fallen. And, you know, it was cool that Jesus died because it gives us forgiveness. But it does not actually change us. And give us the power to live differently. But that's okay, because you know, we're all just sinners saved by grace. Hallelujah. Let's sing, you know, Amazing Grace one more time. Right? Now, again, I'm not trying to mock grace or forgiveness. It is, it is an amazing gift of God. Um, but the problem is that we have, we have not claimed the life and the power that God once for us, right? We talk about, you know, we, we've got to be real and be genuine, which means being transparent, which means I have to be, to be authentic, I have to be honest about my struggles. And I agree with that. Okay, the Christian life is not about putting on a mask and pretending we don't struggle or we don't have difficulties. The apostles all had struggles and they write about them. They all dealt with things. Life was not easy for them. The Christian life was not automatic or simple, right? It is a struggle. 
But the difference is they were overcoming in their struggle, not being constantly defeated by it. But our conversation now is about, you know, uh, walking in grace and forgiveness because that's the best we can hope for. But that's clearly not what the writers of the New Testament intended. Right? Whatever happened to let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, Paul writes in Romans. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. The effect of grace should mean that sin has no dominion over your life. Is that true of you? Right? Are you living a life where sin has no dominion over you? In other words, where you're not being constantly defeated by it. Well, for a lot of my Christian life, that was not true of me. Right? I was constantly being defeated and beat down by my struggles. Um, it was a life of constant, you know, sin and confession and repentance and experiencing God's forgiveness only to go sin again. Right? And, and for too many people, for too many Christians, this is the pattern of their life. Right? And I do not believe uh, that's what God calls us to. The Holy Spirit was poured out in a way that should make a difference in our life. So let's look at uh, Ephesians 5 and see if it will help us understand how we can live life differently uh, by the power or the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so what does it mean to be Spirit-filled? What does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? Uh, and again, this, we're focusing basically on Ephesians 5.18, but we're going to look at some of the greater context as well. Um, so this phrase, filled with the Spirit, okay, what does it mean? Well, uh, we've got to be careful because it's oftentimes greatly misunderstood and misapplied. So what does it actually mean in Scripture? Well, the term is basically used ten times in the New Testament, uh, primarily in, in the Gospel of Luke, in Acts, and one time by Paul. Right? Nine of those times, nine of them, so the majority of those ten times, 90%, uh, it's used to describe clearly the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Right? So in Luke and in Acts, uh, for example, uh, the best example would be Acts 2-4, uh, where Luke writes, uh, on the day of Pentecost, they, meaning the believers, were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Right here, this is talking about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised this in Acts. He said, you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, after I go to the cross and return to the Father, I will send the Comforter who will fill you. Right? And in nine times, it's clearly talking about this gift of the Holy Spirit that's poured out on people when they come to Christ. Right? We talked about this last week, so I'm not going to go into uh, great detail. But it's this idea that when you put your faith in Christ... God has promised His Holy Spirit would be poured out into your life and you would be filled with the Spirit. You receive Him. He indwells your life. Um, uh, and there's nothing you can do, do about that. right? You don't have to pray for it. You don't have to foam at the mouth for it. You don't have to like go on some spiritual pilgrimage and fast and you know suffer a lot. No. You put your faith in Jesus and along with the salvation, part of the package deal is you are sealed with the Spirit. Holy Spirit comes, He indwells, He fills your life, He comes into you. You're filled with the Spirit. Um, it's part of salvation. And it's true for all believers, um, and it's a one-time event that happens to you. So if you're here today, you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. We talked about this last week. Um, but in Ephesians, Paul uses the, the, the phrase here in a very different way. Right? Uh, he says, uh, Do not be... Do not, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're commanded to do this. And the command is, is given to believers. And as we'll see in a minute, it's present. Which means something we're to be doing continually. Right? It's not a one-time thing. We're to be filled with the Spirit. So how is Paul using this differently? Because clearly he's not talking about this one-time indwelling, coming on us of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about something different. So, uh, 
So let's unpack this a little bit. We're going to spend a lot of time parked on this word filling. And unfortunately, we're going to have to do some Greek lessons, okay? I'm sorry about that. Uh, but you really can't understand what Paul is saying if you don't understand uh, some of the, uh, the power of, the, of this language. Um, and the first thing we need to, we need to clarify is that it, Paul does not actually say be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's not actually what he says. And I know you're going to go, well, my Bible says that. Sadly, most translations do, but it's not an accurate translation. The problem is that the word that's translated there, with, is the Greek word en, E-N. And there are at least 21 different ways you can translate that word. Okay? It can be translated in, with, amongst, by, because of, right? So translators have to make decisions about how they translate this word. Um, but but here's, here's a basic principle, okay? Uh, this particular arrangement of words, and I won't go into all the, all the grammar, but this particular uh, grammatical construction is, is seen oftentimes throughout the New Testament. And never, when you see this arrangement, is it translated anywhere else with the word with. Okay, ever. Okay, this is the only exception where this particular construction would be translated with with, which makes you wonder, is that correct, Right? Normally, it would be translated by, okay? We are filled by the Holy Spirit, not with the Holy Spirit. And, of course, the difference is one is talking about the Holy Spirit coming into us and filling us with himself. The other has to do with the Holy Spirit and is filling us with something else, right? He's the one doing the filling, but he's filling us with something different, something else. Uh, and actually, this makes more sense when you look at all of Scripture, Right? Uh, because the Holy Spirit has already filled us. And it's important here to highlight that the Holy Spirit is a person, not just a force, not just some kind of cosmic thing in the universe. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. I love Graham's songs this morning. talked about that, right? Father, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit is a person who dwells in us, who lives in us. And here's the thing. You, you get all of him or none, Right? You can't just get part, like, I, was, I got the thumb of the Holy Spirit. What do you have, right? No, you, you get the whole thing, right? He's either all there filling you or, or there's nothing, right? Um, the Holy Spirit is not like a tetanus shot that wears out, right? This whole, this, this, people get this idea that somehow we got the Holy Spirit, but, you know, he's, he's like a vaccination. And after a while, he wears out and you need a booster charge, right? So we need to get filled up again because he wore out. Well, that's not true, okay? He's a person who dwells in you, and he's not wearing out. He's not fading, right? He's not getting scorched and bleached by the sun, right? I mean, you need to... No, he's, he's a person who lives in us, and we have all of him. All we're ever going to get is in us, right? You are already filled with the Spirit. You, you cannot get more of him, right? This does not mean that somehow we don't have enough. Right? You have all of him there is to have. When he indwells you, right? Um, we can't be filled up with more of him. But it is possible, if he's dwelling and living in us as a person, for him to be an agent by which he fills us, he empowers us, he helps us with something else, right? That just makes a lot more sense. Uh, it helps also to understand what the word filled means. What does it mean to, to be filled? Well, literally, it means to be generously supplied with something. To be generously supplied. So the Holy Spirit is in us. He's a power, an agent, a person who wants to help us. And he helps us by generously supplying with something. Right? With, with stuff that we need to live the Christian life. And I believe that's really what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about getting more of the Spirit. He's not talking about you have to go do something so that, you know, the Holy Spirit will come back to you because he left no, He is in you. He's there. But He wants to do something to fill you with something else. He wants to be an agent by which God's power comes into your life to help you live. So what exactly are we to, are, is the Holy Spirit filling us with? If we're filled by the Spirit, what is He filling you with? Uh, for some of you, maybe hot air. I don't know. Maybe not. For me, maybe that's it. He's filling me with hot air. Lots of possibilities, okay? And the, and, the, and the New Testament actually talks a, a lot about the Holy Spirit's filling or empowering work. Of course, the one that comes to mind is we are filled with the fruit of the Spirit. 
Right? So the, the Holy Spirit wants to come in and He wants to fill you with love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control. Right? So that would be a possibility. Uh, even more significantly, uh, and a lot of times we miss that, this, but the Holy Spirit isn't really about Himself. The Holy Spirit is the most unselfish, um, unpretentious person of the Trinity. He does everything for the sake of the Son and the Father. Uh, and in, act, in, in Ephesians 3.14, um, Paul tells us these amazing words that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to fill you with the presence of the Son and the Father. Okay, actually, Jesus says this in John 14, but in Ephesians 3, Paul puts it this way. He says, For this reason I bow uh, my knees before my Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, okay, so God who is sovereign over all things, that according to the riches of his glory, of God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit. Or you could say by. Strengthened with power by his Holy Spirit. To what end? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. See, one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to bring the presence of Jesus into your life. Right? He strengthens you. He does something by his power in your life. So that Jesus himself can, can take residence. And he uses similar language of God the Father. So, so that would also be an, an option, and it's certainly a truth, that the Holy Spirit fills you with the presence of God himself. Not just the Spirit, but the Father and the Son. The problem is, in, uh, that's chapter 3 of Ephesians. In chapters 4 and 5, Paul changes subjects and he's not talking about that anymore. So I don't believe that's really what he's talking about when he says you need to be filled by the Spirit with, with Jesus. True as that is, I don't think that's the context of what he's talking about in chapters 4 and 5 of Ephesians. So let's read chapters 4 and 5 together. No, not really. <laughs> Start freaking out. No. Uh, let's survey, actually. Let's survey chapters 4 and 5 and see what is he talking about here? What is Paul talking about what's the topic in these two chapters well for uh, chapter 4 verse 17 he says this now this i say and testify in the lord that you must no longer walk as the gentiles do in the futility of their minds so don't walk as the gentiles in other words the, the word walk is a metaphor that means don't live like them right don't don't have a lifestyle that's like the gentiles and he explains that a lot in, 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 in chapter 4. He goes on and talks about what that means. Don't be caught up in sexual immorality and the things of the world. You should live differently. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. There's that word again, walk. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. He's talking about walking in love, living the kind of lifestyle that's filled with God's love, just like God loved us in Jesus and gave himself for us. Uh, further down, chapter 5, verses 7 to 10. Therefore, do not become partners with them that's with the world, with the, the lost. For one time you were, you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That's that word again, right? Walk as children of light. See, Paul has this expectation that your life should be different now. You should not be like you were when you were lost and in the world. Your life should not be like people who don't know Jesus. You should walk as children of light. Okay, this does not mean that you've been exposed to too much radiation and you go in the dark. Right? It means that your inward character, your lifestyle is different. You reflect God's heart and his values and his character. Uh, that you are filled with the fruit of the Spirit. And it's visible to all because your life is different. Finally, in, in chapter 5, verses 15 and 17, the passage we're looking at, he says, look carefully then how you walk. Right? How you live your life. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He says, look, you need, to, you need to understand what God wants you to do. And you, need to have, and you need to live it. You need to do it. You need to be the kind of people who have transformed lives. Um, so I really think in the context 
that what, what Paul's talking about here is being filled by the Holy Spirit with the power to do two things. One, to understand what is pleasing to God. He mentions that earlier in, in chapter 5. He says, you know, you need to understand what, what, what it means to please God. You need to know what God wants of you in your life. And secondly, uh, he wants to fill you with the power or the ability to accomplish it, to do it. Right? You uh, are filled by the Holy Spirit to have the power to walk as children of light. Um, in other words, that it, it, by, the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, by, by his filling is working in our life, we sh- it's possible for us to overcome sin and live a different kind of life. Uh, to, to live a life where we have victory over our struggles instead of defeat. Um, so there you have it. Filled by the Spirit. Right? And a lot of people get really confused about this. You don't need more of the Holy Spirit. Right? But you need more of His power working in your life. I need more of that. Right? I need to tap in and understand... What the Holy Spirit is making available to me to live differently, to walk as children of light. Um, So let's uh, look a little more at this word to be filled. So we saw uh, that we are filled by the Holy Spirit. But let's back up and look at this word fill again. Filled, filling. It's a verb. And again, we've got to do some more Greek grammar. Sorry, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Um, But it's so important because... um, it will really help us understand what this is all about. Um, so Paul's not saying we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be filled by um, that, that the Holy Spirit is giving us a generous supply of urgently needed resources to live the Christian life successfully. Um, so does that mean if we are not experiencing victory and success in our walk that it's the Holy Spirit's fault? Right? I mean, if he's there... And I'm not being changed, it's his fault, right? Because he's not doing his job. Holy Spirit's falling asleep, right? And so the problem is because it's his, he's supposed to be doing this, so it's all his fault. So if I'm just the way I am, well, it's not my, not my fault, right? Is that what it says? Well, uh, probably not, actually. Um, so let's look at this verb. Um, and, and here's the thing. Uh, the Holy Spirit's doing his job. But, but we have a role in this. We have a responsibility. Uh, and here's the Greek lesson, okay? Some of you who know language or know Greek will get this. Those I'll explain. This verb is a present passive imperative. Okay, now, I'm not just, I'm joking. I'm, not, I'm serious. I'm not joking. You need to write this down because this will change your life. <laughs> present passive imperative. You don't know. You just don't know how life-changing this is, right? Here's what this means. Let me unpack what a present passive imperative verb is. Right? First of all, um, the, the present part is the verb tense. So if you're an English speaker or you know English, well, that's good because you can understand what I'm saying to some degree. Um, if you don't understand English, don't worry about it because you're not understanding me anyway. Uh, present tense is the tense, okay? It's when this happens. Uh, and it's present, which means it's not something that has already happened. Paul is not saying you've already been filled. Right? Now, of course, he... We have already been filled with the Spirit, but he's saying this filling by the Spirit is not something that happened to you in the past that's automatic. It's not past. Okay, it's also not future. He's not saying, oh, this is something that could potentially happen to you someday in the future. What he's saying is it's something that needs to be happening now. And in Greek, uh, especially, if something needs to be happening now, and since it's always now, uh, present tense verbs in Greek tend to be what we call continuous Right? It's something that needs to be done continually over and over again. Because right? I need it today, present tense, I need to be filled. But tomorrow, I can't say, well, I was filled yesterday, so I no longer need to be filled. Because okay? it's still a present tense verb. So tomorrow, guess what? I need it again. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, continually. Right? This is something that we need over and over and over in our life. And that's why it can't be the Holy Spirit himself coming. It has to do with his ministry, his operation in our life. Why do we need continual filling? Well, we need it because the struggle against sin is continual. Right? I don't care how old you are. Right? Anybody here besides Ted, 100 years old? 
I had to pick on him because he's a year older than me. So, yeah. And I must be 99, right? Because uh, then there's Averill. I don't want to even talk, go over how old he is. Right? Doesn't matter. Averill, do you still struggle with sin? Don't have to answer that. Because I know the answer. No matter how long you've walked with Jesus, it's a struggle. Right? There's no such thing as arriving where, oh, you know, I woke up this morning and, man, sin's not a problem for me anymore. It doesn't work that way. Okay, I'll be genuine and, 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 and real with you on this one. I struggle with sin every day. Okay? But I don't have to be defeated by it every day because every day I have the opportunity to be filled new again with God's power to deal with it. Right? It doesn't matter how much you know the Bible. Your knowledge of the Bible does not eradicate and eliminate your struggle with sin. You can have the whole thing memorized. You could have written 20-volume commentaries, right? You could be super smart about the Bible. doesn't matter. It does not change your struggle with sin. Um, it doesn't matter if you are serving God full-time. You may think, well, I'm serving God. I'm a missionary. I mean, I basically walk on water, right? It doesn't matter. The struggle for sin does not go away just because you're serving God, because you're busy doing stuff for God. It doesn't matter how successful you've been in ministry. Right? Billy Graham, you know, proclaimed the gospel to millions and millions of people. He will tell you, didn't change his struggle with sin. Right? We, we, everyone, needs to be daily in the present, being filled with God's power to deal with these things, because we never become immune or outgrow the struggle with sin. Right? That's not what this is about. Um, but we should uh, have victory in our struggle. We should just come to see more success in our struggle. Second thing, uh, the verb is, is present, and it is passive. Okay, there's a Greek scholar out there somewhere. Way to go. Passive. What is passive? Well, a verb can describe action going in two directions. It can describe uh, the person doing the action, or it can describe the action being done to them. So here's an example. Today, uh, as Lana shared, we're going to have a baptism for Bree. going to get baptized. Um, and this is going to be both a passive and active event. Okay? I am going to baptize Bree. Right? Meaning I'm, I, I get to be the one who dunks her under the water. Right? I'm the one doing the action. So for me, it's, it's an active event. Right? But for her, it's passive. Right? She's not going out there dunking herself. Right? She's being baptized. It's passive. She's receiving this, this thing in her life. She's receiving baptism. And we talked about that. Receiving the rites of baptism is passive. It's done to me. Right? So the verb here is passive. And again, this is, I know this, you're thinking, this is just grammar. I, I hate grammar. I failed it. Okay. This is life-changing. Okay? It really is. Because what the Bible is saying here is, being filled is something the Holy Spirit does to you. It is not something you do. There's nothing you can do in your power to fill yourself. It's only something you can receive. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means in a minute. But it means that it must come from outside of us. It's a power that has to be acted upon us from outside. Not something we do to ourselves. So here's the thing, you know, you will daily struggle with sin. It is not up to you to battle it in your own power. It has to come, it has to happen to you. The victory, the success, the overcoming has to happen from outside, from the Holy Spirit, from His power, from His working. Okay, thirdly, so it's present, passive, and here's the best part of all. This is just so exciting. It's an imperative. Hallelujah. And I know I'm crazy. Um, what does it mean it's imperative? You're like, yeah, whatever. Okay, a verb, it's, this has to do with the mood of the verb, and it tells you what kind of action the verb is describing. Okay, here's the options. It could be a simple fact. Uh, for example, Susie washed the dishes. Okay, that's uh, one form. Another is it could be a potential action. So I could say, I wish Susie would wash the dishes, right? Uh, if it's your child, maybe you use that every day. Or it can be a command. Susie, go wash the dishes, right? Well, which form is it? Well, the imperative is the, is the mode of command. 
Right? So Paul is not saying here, he's not stating a fact. They, you know, you are filled. That would be a fact. That's not what he's saying. He's not expressing wish. He's not saying, well, I wish you would be filled by the Spirit. No, it's a command. He said, no, I want, you, I want you, I'm commanding you, I'm ordering you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, what that means is if we're not walking as children of light, if we're not experiencing success, it's not because the Holy Spirit fell down on the job. It's not because he fell asleep and you need to wake him up. It's because you are not doing your part. Okay, You're commanded to do this because you have a part in this. Okay, now, if you're, if you're pretty smart and you're kind of thinking this through, okay, present, I get that now, continually. Passive, it has to be done to me. Imperative command, I have to do it. Hold on, wait a minute. Okay, right here, your brain should be short-circuiting, right? Because how, how do you do something that's supposed to be done to you, right? How do you, how do you fulfill a command that you have to receive? Um, and that's one of the problems with passive imperatives. Right? How do you do something that you don't have any control over, right? that's done to you? Well, it's one of the wonders of the Christian life. And here's the thing, uh, and, and I'm serious about this. You will really never understand the Christian life if you don't get the, the principle of a passive imperative, right? That we're commanded to get out there and do something that we can't do. It has to be done to us. So what does that mean? And that just seems impossible. And, and um, it certainly can be confusing. But, but here's the good news. Paul gives us a great example right in this passage of how this works. Okay? He's going to help us understand this. Uh, and if you remember, if you look back in verse 18, he starts off his example. He says, and do not what? Do not get drunk with wine. Now guess what? Guess what kind of verb this is? A present passive imperative, right? He says, don't, don't do this. That's the command. Don't do what? Well, don't get drunk with wine. It's, it's, an, it's, 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 uh, um, it's passive, right? It's something that's done to us. And it's an example of how this works. Uh, and many commentators will highlight that this kind of comes out of the blue, right? Paul's talking about all this stuff. All of a sudden he starts talking about getting drunk with wine. It doesn't quite fit. But the reason is he's using it as an illustration of what he means by a passive imperative. How do you get drunk? Well, let's, let's explain this. Now, I would not use this example except Paul did, okay? So I'm going to talk about getting drunk in church on Sunday morning before God and you, only because this is Paul's example, not mine, right? And I have to be honest, I have to confess, I am speaking from firsthand experience. <laughs> okay, yeah. um, however, it was a long time ago. Uh, a long, long time ago. The first time I got drunk, I was a kid. You know, we found some can of beer somewhere. And after about five swallows, we're just, you know, slobbering drunk. Because I weighed all of 80 pounds when I was 12. Um, so here's the thing. How does this work, right? Well, uh, there is something you do. And, and so Paul can command it because we do have a part. You have to actually drink something, right? Uh, you have to open the can of the bottle, whatever it is, you have to drink it, right? But here's the thing. Only certain substances will have this effect, right? It has to be alcohol. Alcohol has some power in it that, that is separate from us. So here's the truth. If you drink 10 gallons of grape juice, or orange, let's say orange juice, right? If you drink 10 gallons of orange juice, will it make you drunk? No, it will just make you have to go to the bathroom really bad, Right? That's all it does, right? It doesn't have that influence because it doesn't have power in it to influence you that way, right? But if you drink even a small amount of alcohol, depending on how concentrated it is, uh, it, it has an effect upon you because there's some power in the substance itself that's outside of us. And you, your drinking is giving it opportunity, right? Your drinking is, is, is welcoming it. You're inviting it into your life to have its influence over you. And of course, the more you drink, the more influence it has. Great picture of a passive imperative, right? Yeah, there's a part you play. You have to invite it. You have to welcome it in. You have to put yourself in a position where you come under its power and control. But the power is not in you. It's in that outside thing. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, there's something you have to do. You have to invite the Spirit's 
influence in your life. Okay, you don't have to invite him in personally because he's already there, but you have to welcome what he wants to do in your life. And, and Paul says you can, uh, you, you, can, you can resist the power to drink, right? That doesn't mean you can resist the power of alcohol, right? If you've had five beers or five whatevers, and you can't say, well, I'm just going to resist its influence. Well, that's silly, right? You're just being an idiot, and you're, you're cruising to get a, a ticket for drunk driving or whatever, right? But you can resist its influence by not letting it get too close to you. If you don't drink it, it can't influence you, right? Well, same thing with the Holy Spirit. We can resist His power and His influence, or we can invite it and welcome it. We can put ourselves in a position where, where, where we are giving Him the opportunity to do His work in us and through us. Um, that's the filling by the Holy Spirit, empowering us to do things we could never do on our own. And it's a command for us to do. So really, this is, the, this is the beauty of the gospel and living our life by what I would call passive imperatives. Living out God's commands to do things that we can't do. Right? Uh, and the simple truth is this. We have no power to understand what pleases God and even less power to do it. Um, doesn't mean that we can't do some things right. We can all do some things right. Maybe you can do a lot of things right. But the wonderful good news is that you cannot be successful being a good person, pleasing God, doing His will by yourself. Right? You cannot do it. Um, that's why Romans 3, 10 through 12 says this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one understands God's will. No one really understands what God wants. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Okay, that, that's the reality of who we are. Right? We do not have the capacity or power to do the right thing. And of course the good news is that you know, Romans 6.23, the wages, the wages of sin is death. The consequences of our rebellion and our un, un, inability to, to do what pleases God brings about spiritual death. But... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the good news is this. All you can do is mess up, right? All you can do is fail. All you can do is, is do what doesn't please God. But that's what the cross is about. Right? Jesus came to, to pay for your sin, to pay for the penalty and consequences, to take upon himself the wages for our wrong. Right? And so there is forgiveness and there is grace. And no matter how many times you sin, there's grace. Right? God's grace, the cross, is absolutely sufficient to cover all of your sins, past, present, and future. Right? Um, but here's the thing. Being forgiven does not make us any less hopeless. Right? Okay, being forgiven does not give you a new power all of a sudden by itself to start living and doing the right thing. You need more help. Uh, and what you need, what God has given graciously is His Holy Spirit to give you the power and the ability to understand what God's will is and to do it. You can't do it, but the Holy Spirit can. And He wants to do it in you and, and through you. Uh, he wants to fill you so that you can overcome every temptation, every struggle, every sin that, that you deal with. All right, so how do we actually do this? Let me close by trying to apply this in a practical way, I hope, for what this looks like in your own life. How can you start uh, appropriating uh, the power of the Spirit? How can you start, in a sense, drinking that, that alcohol of the Spirit that He would start having influence in your life to live differently? Uh, let me use a little different image to help, uh, help explain, again, this whole passive imperative. How do we actively do something that happens to us? Um, a great picture that describes this is really a sailboat, right? A sailboat has no power. A true sailboat, of course, nowadays sailboats have motors and engines, and I get that. But a real sailboat, like back in the old days, only had the sails to power it, which means there was nothing in the sailboat itself that would, that would move it forward. And so the sailor couldn't just get up there and grab the steering wheel and yell at the boat, go, <laughs> right? 
when there's nothing in the boat itself that, that could move it forward. But of course, um, it harnesses the wind's power. So the wind is a power and a force outside the sailboat that will power it, that will move it forward, that will make it go. Um, but the sailor does have a job, right? He can't just go out on the deck and say, well, it's a windy day. We should just be moving right along, right? No, he has to actually do some work to raise the sails, or we call set the sails, right? Which means hoist them up, get them out where, the, where they'll catch the wind. And he needs to adjust them and set them at the right angles and the right positions to maximize the force of the wind. Well, it's a great picture of this passive imperative, right? He's got to get out there and do some work. But the, his work doesn't make the boat go. His work only makes it possible for the wind to fill it with its power and drive the boat forward. So it is with you and I. There are some things we need to do, but we need to understand that the things you do in themselves don't accomplish anything. All you can do is set the sail so that the Holy Spirit will come along and his power will put things in motion. So what are some things you can, you can do? How do we do this? Right? Again, knowing that it's not our doing, it's the Holy Spirit. Uh, first thing, a uh, practical thing we can do, and this may sound kind of random and off the wall, but the first thing you can do is fall in love with Jesus. Okay? And probably, perhaps one of the most critical things you can do is come to fall in love with Jesus, to deepen your relationship with him. What in the world does that have to do with anything? Um, well, um, our part has primarily to do with our will and our faith. And by will, I do not mean our determination to do it. I don't mean that. I don't mean I'm determined, I'm going to overcome sin. That will get you nowhere. I know from experience. What I mean is that God has given us uh, choices, the ability to choose certain things. And you have the freedom and power and ability to choose to do the right thing. You don't have the power to do it, but you have the, the choice to decide you want to. Do you want to live a righteous, holy, godly life? Well, the reality is a lot of people don't go there because they don't even want that. They're just happy being forgiven all the time. It's like, well, it's just the way I am. I'm a sinner. You need to decide and choose and determine that you want to live a righteous, godly life. But not a righteousness that is self-righteous. Not a moral life that says, well, see what a good person I am. If your motivation to do the right thing is to prove to the world and to God what a good person you are, it's not going to work, right? Or if you do it to manipulate God so that God will give you stuff, it's not going to work, right? Our motivation for doing the right thing needs to be because we really love God. Jesus put it this way in John 14. Verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, if you really love me, you will have a new motivation to do the right thing. And this is what, notice what he says in verse 16. He says, if you do that, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. Okay, so Jesus links those things. Your love for him, your desire to follow him, your your, uh, obedience that comes out of a heart uh, because you care about him is what empowers and enables the operation of the Spirit in your life. Second thing. So first thing, decide you want to live a righteous life because you love Jesus so much. Right? The more you grow in your love for Him and you, the more gratitude you have for what He did for you and saving you, right, you will want to do the right thing. Second thing, admit how impossible it is. Okay, and I think this is the, the thing where we all go wrong. Right? We say, oh, I... I love God. I want to keep His commandments. I want to do the right thing. I can do this. I got this. Perfect way to fail. Crash and burn. And I speak from tons of experience. Right? What we need to do when God reveals to us something He wants us to do, what we need to do is say, God, I can't. This is impossible for me. We must be completely honest with ourselves and with God that no matter how hard we try, if it's up to me, I will absolutely fail. And, 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 it's, 
It's not an active command. He's not saying, go out and do this. He's saying, go out and choose this, but realize you can't. Then, uh, when we've come to the point of realizing how hopeless we are on our own, the third step is to believe, is have faith. We need to believe in the promise that God has given us His Holy Spirit who's promised to fill us with His power to help us. Uh, faith is believing that, that He is going to help. That He's going to bring a power into our life from outside that's going to give us the ability to overcome sin or to, to, to carry out and do what's pleasing to Him. And Paul goes on, we don't have time to look at it today, but he goes on and he talks about what will happen if you do this. He says, you will have a life that's full of worship, of crazy thanksgiving, and of a humble, submissive spirit. Right? Um, just an example out of my own life, I can do lots, but um, a couple months back, I was uh, preparing for Sunday morning, trying to preach, and, and it just had not gone well. And some days, you know, things kind of fall together. Some days... It's like, I just can't make this work. And it was getting late, and I just really had nothing, and I was getting super frustrated. I just wanted to take my computer and smash it against the wall and call somebody and say, I'm sick, I have laryngitis for the rest of my life. Um, somebody else do this, because I'm done, right? And I was like, so frustrated. And you know, um, frustration doesn't actually help. <laughs> and getting up and preaching frustrated is not a good thing. And I, I just really had nothing to say. It's like, it's going to be real life. I get up and there's nothing to say, right? And I just remember saying, God, I can't do this, right? I, I can't do this. I don't have it. I don't have a word. I don't have wisdom. I have nothing. And the crazy thing is, I mean, like literally seconds after praying that and just being so frustrated and really just giving up, boom. I mean, the words just poured, right? And it's like, God just filled me with his spirit, and, and the words just flowed out. It was a good thing, because it was the final hour. Okay, that's how it works, right? When we give up, we put ourselves in a position of the spirit's power. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.com. Thank you.